Screen Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. We have a real treat today. Uh, yeah, I hope so. We're watching the movie Sex Maniac from 1934, also known as Maniac. People just didn't want sex in the title? Yeah, um... Films of this ilk often had different titles. I'll sort of touch on that a bit more later, but perhaps what would be helpful is to say that this is an exploitation film. Mm -hmm. From the very early days of exploitation cinema, the 1930s, from the filmmaker who's kind of regarded as the father of exploitation cinema, Dwayne Esper. It might help to explain what exploitation cinema is and who Dwayne Esper was. Yeah, because when I hear exploitation film... I think of like the black exploitation films in the seventies. Mm-hmm. I think of Tarantino today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, what what does early exploitation type of film look like? Well, it certainly is the type of film that evolved into you know that kind of drive-in grindhouse cinema later in the century. The origins of the name grindhouse cinema are a little bit. Obscure. There's a lot of competing theories. One is that they were cinemas that originally were in the same theaters as burlesque theaters, where there was a lot of bump and grind dancing. Their other theory is that grindhouse cinemas were cinemas where basically the projector never got turned off. You were just running one film after another, after another, after another. You just came in at any time into the theater, and just what price you paid just more or less determined was determined by like what time of day it was and they just always needed content because they were just continually showing stuff so it was sort of about grinding out content Mm -hmm. regardless that sort of journey to those types of movies started in the late 20s and early 30s with this filmmaker named Dwayne Esper what it was about at that time continue to be what the, the, the predominant through line of exploitation cinema was, which is movies that exist outside the normal mainstream boundaries of morality and censorship. Movies that exist outside the rating system or the production code uh, that show things that you wouldn't ordinarily see in mainstream movies. So that's why, even though technically by this point, the Hollywood code has come in, we're not talking about the code yet. Yeah, because this is a film that was very much designed to exist outside the code and to circumvent it, as all exploitation films for the next 30 years would do, and exploitation films afterwards were designed to circumvent the MPAA rating system. And this sort of film sort of died away, really, in our modern-day world just because the morality of what you're showing on film has become so loose mm. that it doesn't, there isn't a huge distinction, right? You know, stuff like the Saw movies would have been off-brand exploitation, cheap B cinema in the 70s, but in the 2000s, they were big studio pictures. So would you say that this, um, I guess, subgenre of films was really bolstered by the fact that the code came in during this year? What it ended up doing was separating out 
the difference between respectable movies are like this and underground movies are like this. Mm. It created that distinction. Because that's really what these are, is underground film. There's an interesting sort of um, dichotomy created where, you know, I forget which critic said this, but there was a, a film critic once who said that, you know, the kind of movies that in Europe would be called art films are the kind of movies that in America are called exploitation films. Interesting. Not necessarily, I mean... <laughs> That's sort of a misnomer because generally speaking, European art films are made with a lot of craft behind them and exploitation films often show evidence of um, incompetence in how they're put together. Amateur? Amateurism, yeah. But what is consistent between the two is sort of showing things you wouldn't necessarily see in mainstream cinema, maybe using narrative techniques that you wouldn't see in mainstream cinema, pushing the boundaries of sex and violence, that kind of stuff. Okay. So tell us about Dwayne Esper. Yeah, that's sort of where this story starts. Dwayne Esper was born in 1894 in Snohomish, Washington. He had served in World War I, and afterwards he worked as a building contractor in L.A. in the 1920s. He got into filmmaking because he discovered some abandoned film equipment in a property foreclosure for a building that was going to be uh, torn down so that he could come in and build up like a new subdivision or whatever. Okay. So with this equipment that he just sort of found lying around, he made a short film in 1928 called The Truth About Sex. And what he discovered making this film was an amazing little fact. He could get around censorship laws if he marketed his films as educational. So this has always been where he's placed himself. It wasn't like he started out in film school no. and then went this route. He's just always been outside the whole industry. Exactly. This is a guy who never had any formal film training, never worked in the real film industry. This is a guy who picked up a camera, pointed it at some people having sex... <laughs> You know, and then was like, cool, people like this, I'll just sell this to people. <laughs> and then when the censor boards came around and said, uh, you can't show that in a movie, he was like, well, but it's educational. Sure. Like, like, I guess it's worth saying that porn at this point was probably, like, just all in print. Yeah, or like extremely underground, or you might have stuff like Nickelodeons, where you would go to a, a bar, like an adult bar and you might put a nickel in a machine and look into a little viewer and there'd be like a little five minute short eight millimeter reel of some porn or something. That's where the term Nickelodeon comes from? Yeah, for sure. And now it, they make children's content. <laughs> well, Nickelodeon refers to the device more than the porn. Okay. It's basically just a um, sort of a one person film viewing device that you would put a nickel into. Okay. But mostly it was used to show porn. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you know, the thing was that like, even you talked about it being in print, that sort of stuff would have to be very underground too. Like, yeah, like you would, Tijuana Bibles, like you would have to like find hidden in places. Yeah, exactly. You wouldn't be buying it at a bookstore or whatever, yeah. right? So what Dwayne Esper was doing was making, and to call it porn by 2018 standards of porn is also a bit of a misnomer. This is stuff like you get to see a woman change out of her clothes. Yeah. And you get to see her naked, and you're like, holy shit, right? But you would, like, he literally had a movie called um, 
how to undress for your husband, where it's like shows like one woman who like undresses all sexy and one woman who undresses all messily and like the sexy one is better. And the point of the movie is you get to see these women naked, but it's presented like some kind of how to like educational movie, you know, as if it's passing off porn as sex ed. Yeah. is what it's doing, right? Okay. So he began producing and directing his own films, feature-length films, uh, and they were all written by his wife, Hildegard Stadi, who was a former carny who had been raised by her opium-addicted carny uncle. I would love to hear more about her. <laughs> like, can we have an autobiographical movie just about her? <laughs> so... You know, between Dwayne, who had the film equipment and had this desire to make movies about sex and violence and all the things that you couldn't put in a normal movie, because that was how he was going to compete, right? Mm -hmm. That was how he was going to compete with, you know, he didn't know how to make good movies. He didn't have money. He didn't have actors. He didn't have the star system. But he had what Hollywood movies didn't, which was like taboo subject matter. Mm -hmm. And then because his wife, who was writing the films, had this background in basically carny culture, she was able to come up with these really salacious titles and, like, provocative posters and, like, sell these things in a very kind of, like, you have to see what this is way. Yeah. They found that, you know, they could make these movies about sex, about drug abuse, about other salacious money-making subjects, so long as they had some sort of ersatz educational content in them, and also so long as they adopted a very conservative moral tone. Okay. Um, which is to say that their movies purported to be against everything they were depicting. So you'd make a movie showing people, like, getting high and having, like, crazy drug parties, and then be like, this could happen to you. Like, your children are, are <laughs> out here, like, getting high, and, and it's bad. Or, like, you'd show some sort of pornographic movie of some people having sex, and then you'd be like, both these people died later of venereal disease. Sex without love and marriage is bad. Like, sure. You, this is how you'd wrap this footage. That like, But everyone knew what you were there to see, right? Yeah. So kind of that, the joke around reefer madness. Yeah, in fact, I'm going to be getting to reefer madness. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> so Esper and Stadi did not understand how the distribution and exhibition systems of the time worked, and it's likely that even if they did, they couldn't have used them, as theater owners would have balked at screening their controversial films. You know, like, most theaters in this period were either chain-owned by the studios, like your Paramount Theaters and your Fox Theaters and this sort of thing, or they were independently owned, in which case they were like small mom-and-pop businesses in rural towns where, you know, you didn't want to upset the town by going against moral and social norms. Yeah. Um, and they certainly weren't going to be able to get these movies into, like, the Paramount-owned theaters, right? So what Esper and Stadi did in order to actually show these films is they used a roadshow system called Four Walling. And essentially what Four Walling was, was Esper and Stadi would come into town, they would then rent a theater for like two weeks, and then do targeted advertising for their film to create buzz around it. 
So putting up posters, advertising like an adult, like adults only screenings, this theater only for these two weeks, mm. this kind of thing. And because they had rented the theater for that period of time, they could kind of show whatever they wanted, and this is what they would show. After a successful run, or after being run out of town, <laughs> either or, uh, they would then move on to the next town and the next engagement. So again, that carny culture, or carny... The carnival sense of doing things came in here. Yeah, exactly. Bigger Hollywood movies did do this at, at the time, too, but it was sort of the roadshow style of exhibition was usually, for Hollywood movies, like a big prestige thing, right? Like coming to your town for one week, Fantasia. And this is sort of the other side of the scale <laughs> where it's like coming to your town for one week, Sex Maniac. So their first feature film was 1930's Sinister Harvest, which was about opium addicts. Okay. Then they did 1932's The Seventh Commandment, which is about adultery. And then 1933's Narcotics, which was another drug abuse movie. And then 1934's Sex Maniac, which is supposedly an educational film about mental health disorders. What it is actually is basically a schlocky B-movie mad scientist horror movie about experiments gone wrong and with some Edgar Allan Poe, the black cat motifs thrown in, because why not at this point? <laughs> uh, it would be followed by Modern Motherhood the same year, then 1936's Marijuana, then 1937's How to Undress in Front of Your Husband. Okay. Uh, and How to Take a Bath. I mean, it is good to promote good hygiene. Right. And then there was 1938's Sex Madness, <laughs> which warned of the dangers of venereal disease. And you can see in all of these cases, you know, what these movies are really showing. What the real appeal is. Yeah. What's worth stressing is that the espers were successful with this system. They were successful enough with this system of extremely independent movie making that they were able to keep it up and do it consistently throughout the Great Depression. Yeah. By the end of the decade, they were so successful that they were able to start buying the rights to other already produced films that were exploiting this same trend. Mm. Um, and again, these films are exploiting loopholes in the production code. Ergo, they are exploitation films. Mm -hmm. So the Espers started buying the rights to other exploitation films and then releasing them under their distribution system, essentially becoming a distribution company for indie films that don't have distributors using this four-wall system. Yeah. So it was in this way, for instance, that a little-seen 1936 film called Tell Your Children was bought by Dwayne Esper and retitled to become Reefer Madness in 1938. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so, so you know, very much on point identifying Reefer Madness as, as being one of these movies, because it was. Esper's greatest coup, financially speaking, would be in 1947, when MGM would sell him the rights to Freaks for $50,000, uh, which ensured that that film would be remembered and build a cult reputation on the exploitation circuit uh, until it was released on video in the 80s. Yeah, Freaks fits right up this type of alley. Yeah, it's, it's you know, 
showing you things that you aren't going to see in a mainstream film having a lot of questionable ethics around how you're doing it. I think um, it's also interesting to think about how, like we talk about in the Freaks episode, how much pushback it was against Todd Browning. Like, it ruined his career, Mm -hmm. and yet it found success on this other market. So we talked in the Freaks episode how part of the backlash was, you know, you're going too far with your horror. Perhaps it was also this type of movie doesn't, quote-unquote, belong here. Absolutely. You know, there was an expectation of certain kinds of content from your big Hollywood studios. You know, people knew the difference between Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Monogram Pictures. You know, you, you, you had expectations of a certain level of production quality, a certain level of glamour, a certain level of style in a major film than you would from a Poverty Row film. And I think... You know, it's quite a different movie-going experience, you know, walking into a big theater palace with an open general audience, because that was the thing about Under the Production Code especially. You know, there's no rating system. A movie's either for everyone or it's for no one. So you're walking in with a general audience. It's MGM. They're known for glamour and glitz, and you come in and it's freaks. Versus you're going into a seedy dive theater downtown you know, with adults only, you know, stickered on the 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 marquee mm-hmm. and, you know, coming in and seeing freaks in that context, right? Definitely. So, um, Sex Maniac, which is the film we're watching today, survives today in a later print where the title card has been replaced with one bearing the more tame title of Maniac, <laughs> um, which exploitation films often had different titles depending on what the producer thought would sell in different regions. You know, so as you moved from Maine to Pennsylvania to Tennessee to, you know, Alabama, you might be changing the name of your movie to what might appeal most in those states, right? Yeah. Um, so what we'll be seeing is the, the maniac version of this film. <laughs> is anything else changed, though? No. Okay. No, just the title card, and it's really obviously changed. <laughs> um, so this was an early Dwayne Esper film, relatively speaking, in his career. It's uh, directed and produced by Esper himself and written by his wife, Hildegard Stadi. It combines sort of a typical mad scientist plot with beats from various Edgar Allan Poe stories There's educational title cards throughout to allow its horror movie plot to show things that would never be acceptable in a Hollywood film, particularly given that Maniac began its roadshow screenings on September 11th, 1934, two months after the production code started to be enforced. So really there was no way a film like this would get through in the standard Hollywood system. Mm Mm-hmm. The nature of how it was screened means we don't really know how much money it made, but it only cost $5,000 to make, so it was likely fairly profitable. Yeah, (laughs) at least got even. Yeah, or if not more, since they kept making more of these after this, right? Dwayne Esper didn't know how to make movies in the traditional sense. Dwayne Esper knew how to make Dwayne Esper movies. None of the actors in this are what you would consider professional actors, you know, this this is the kind of movie where we're shooting in somebody's basement because they're away on holidays for two weeks and we got <laughs> into this house, you know, because we were house-sitting for them at the time. Like, you know, this is really 
amateur hour stuff. But, you know, it's got some stuff in it that you might, you might like. You might want to see. So, yeah. So how are we watching it? Well, it's, of course, fallen into the public domain long ago. Yeah. So there's a lot of DVD releases of it. You can find it in a lot of different, like, collections of schlocky <laughs> old, you know, horror movie stuff. We're just watching a version on YouTube, sort of the best YouTube version I could find, because there's, again, a lot of them. And it's on the Scream Scene playlist on YouTube. If you would like to see this playlist, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Until then, uh, watch along with us and we'll hear a brief musical interlude. And be right back after watching Sex Maniac, directed by Dwayne Esper from 1934. A.K.A. Just Maniac. It's Just Maniac, but just isn't in the title. I'm so confused. Never mind. See you on the other side, everybody. <laughs> Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Maniac, a.k.a. Sex Maniac. Directed by... Dwayne Esper. Oh, this movie is is uh, quite something. This is, like, really our first movie we've seen that I think falls into, like, the traditional midnight movie kind of category. Like, this is the 1930s equivalent of The Room, right? Like, this is... That same kind of thing where it's so badly made, but so inexplicably weird that your brain kind of short circuits when you're watching it, and the only thing you can really do is laugh at it. Yeah. Because, like... We had previous episodes that are kind of like that. Mm. Supernatural and Mansion of Terror. House of Mystery? House of Mystery. The thing about House of Mystery is that, like, House of Mystery was made by people who are sane. Um, like, like, House of, like, what I mean to say is that House of Mystery was made badly. Like, the writing isn't good, it's not directed well, it's not shot well, whatever. But it's made by people who, like, understand what, like, a movie and a story is supposed to be. Yeah. You know? Like, it's, it knows what it's trying to do, it's just doing it badly. This movie's just doing whatever, because it's coming from the point of view of its specific, like, creators, right? One of the things that makes these kind of movies unique, you know, the thing that makes a Dwayne Esper film or an Ed Wood film or a um, Tommy Wiseau film what they are is that they aren't just bad, but they're, like, these weird glimpses into the auteur's, like, bizarre worldview. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not just that you're getting a bad movie, it's that you're getting a weird, inexplicable movie. Whereas, like, you watch House of Mystery, and they're bad at it, but, like, it's still just, like, a company trying to, like, rip off a formula to make a buck. Yeah. Whereas this movie's just weird. Yeah, do you want to tell us how weird it is? Yeah, okay, so, it's, it's a little hard to get across in plot summary. This movie really needs to be kind of seen to be experienced, and it's only an hour, so just... You know. It's less. It's 50 minutes. Right. It begins with a title card talking about how the worst 
possible disease of the mind is fear. And if you just don't be afraid of anything and instead have faith, you can replace worry with confidence. Also that every criminal is guilty of mental illness. Yes. Then we establish that we are following Dr. Meyer Schultz, who's a accented mad scientist with a beard and crazy hair, <laughs> and his assistant, Don Maxwell, who is a ex-vaudeville performer who specialized in impersonations, who has become Meyer Schultz's assistant because there's a vague implication he did something in the past that means that this is the only job he can get. Yeah. Meyer Schultz is doing experiments into bringing people back to life, and the thing about that is that they need to be dead first. So they go to the morgue and steal a body. And they bring the body back to life. It's this woman who's like a young 20-something who killed herself with like a gas suicide. And they bring her back to life. This sets like the cops on the long process of being on their trail because they stole a body from the morgue, but it's going to take a while for the cops to really catch up with them in any meaningful <laughs> way. Meyer Schultz is not satisfied with the fact that they've brought this woman back to life. He wants to... He's got a heart, a beating heart in a jar that he's made. And, I think so, yeah. Yeah, and he wants to basically kill Maxwell and then put the heart in Maxwell and bring him back to life. And he's so sure that Maxwell is so into this, too, that it gives him a gun. Yeah, he doesn't... He Like, there's this moment where he's about to pull a gun out of a drawer and you think he's going to shoot Maxwell. But he's like, yeah, so you're going to shoot yourself and then I'll bring you back to life. So Maxwell does what the only you know reasonable thing to do in that situation is, is he shoots Meyer Schultz and then Meyer Schultz is dead. And then the doorbell rings is what happens. <laughs> and Maxwell goes to answer it, and it's this woman, Mrs. Buckley, whose husband thinks he's the orangutan from Murders in the Rue Morgue. And Meyer Schultz, I guess, in addition to being a dude who brings dead bodies back to life, was also a psychologist or a psychiatrist, maybe? Yeah. Maxwell's like, oh, yes, I'll go get Dr. Meyer Schultz. Just one moment. And goes back into the laboratory where Meyer Schultz's dead body is still lying there. And using his makeup kit from his vaudeville days, makes himself look like Meyer Schultz. And then spends the rest of the movie being Meyer Schultz. So it's sort of like Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> no, I don't think so. So... He doesn't know what to do with Mrs. Buckley's husband because he's not actually a doctor. But he figures that if he can fill a syringe with water and shoot him up with it, that'll be harmless and it'll make Mrs. Buckley think he's done something and they'll go away. Unfortunately, Maxwell, as Meyer Schultz, is dumb. So he instead grabs a <laughs> syringe filled with super adrenaline <laughs> and jabs Mr. Buckley full of that, which turns Mr. Buckley into a crazy orangutan person. Um... Like, not physically, just mentally. Yes. This is when the dead woman they brought back to life just walks into the scene in a sort of zombie trance in negligee, and orangutan Buckley, like, grabs her and, like, takes off into the night with her in his arms, growling, at one point stopping to rip her dress apart so that we can see her titties, and then they just <laughs> wander off into the night, uh. and that's... That's the, the last we see of them. Yeah, that's the end of them. That's the last of it. Is he the sex maniac? 
Like, who's the sex maniac? Well, there's also that bit where, like, Maxwell pretending to be Meyer Schultz seems to, like, fantasize about taking advantage of a patient. Yeah, that was weird. Anyways, after her husband has gone crazy and taken a undead woman out into the wilderness, <laughs> never to be seen again, Mrs. Buckley notices there's a dead body on the laboratory floor, but its face just conveniently happens to be obscured from her angle. So Maxwell, pretending to be Meyer Schultz, tells Mrs. Buckley that the dead body on the floor is Maxwell's body, his assistant, who killed himself. And Mrs. Buckley's like, I just saw that guy. I think you killed him. And Meyer Schultz is like, ah, uh, er, ah. Uh, and Mrs. Buckley's like, but hey, I think we speak the same language. And then the audience is confused and Meyer Schultz is confused. And it turns out that Mrs. Buckley thinks that because Meyer Schultz can bring people back to life, that means he can control them. Which, as we've seen with, like, the understanding of zombies in, like, white zombie... I can understand why she would think that. Okay, sure. So she says, you know, you killed your assistant Maxwell so you could bring him back to life. I won't tell anyone if you kill my husband and bring him back to life so that I can control him. And he just says yes. Right. Uh, Meanwhile, like, the cops are slowly closing in by interviewing Meyer Schultz's neighbors, who include, like, a really monotone woman who keeps talking about how queer it is in Meyer Schultz's house. <laughs> and like... A guy who owns a thousand cats. Yes. Literally a thousand cats. In a cat farm. In a bizarre, bizarre cat farm. That he goes into extreme detail about how cats eat rats. Mm-hmm. Rats eat dead cats. Mm-hmm. And he collects the skins. Yes. As if he's, like, trying to make a fur farm. Yeah, it's a fur farm using cats. And and rats. Well, because it's, like, a self-sustaining ecosystem. And it has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. (laughs) So, it's worth stating that throughout the movie, at certain points, the movie just stops for these title cards that give, like, basically just copied out of some textbook they had lying around definitions of various mental disorders. And they happen at moments where I think the idea is that you should be thinking of Maxwell slash Miles Schultz as having these disorders. Yeah, so like there's, um, they go into dementia praecox, which is like an old-timey version, an old-timey word for schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. They also bring up Mania. Yeah, mania, general mania, uh, manic depressive disorder. Paranoia. um, Paranoia. General paresis. Right, which just means that, like, you have paralysis and, like, a bit of madness from syphilis, right? Uh, yeah, well, the idea is that, um, your your brain is dying, mainly from syphilis. (laughs) Right. So, (laughs) these just sort of come up at random points and the best thing about them is that there's, like, this music that goes with them that just starts and stops hard cut when these cards come up, like, mid-note. Like, no, it, it's, very, it's very comical. It's very, like, it's as if these cards, like, all sort of existed on one reel of film with, like, one continuous soundtrack. And then they just chopped them up into the individual cards and just edited them into the movie with the soundtrack chopped up as is. It's it's very unintentionally comedic. So, I believe this is where we randomly find out that Maxwell's had a wife this whole time. Yeah, and that, there's like 15 minutes left in the movie, 
and the title card comes up saying, Maxwell had forgotten about his wife, as had she about him. Yeah, and then we cut to, it's basically like four women who are sharing an apartment together, and it's just a bunch of random sort of 1930s women comedic dialogue that just goes on for a while, has nothing really to do with the plot or with anything or with character or anything. It's all just an excuse for them to have like a five-minute scene of four women in their underwear just kind of walking around their apartment. They're having a bath or they're doing their makeup or they're using one of those like like electric belt machines that's supposed to make you thin because it shakes you with the belt. Yeah, I don't understand how those work. But they don't. They don't. Podcast. They're not. They're, yeah, that's sawbones. But um, the, the, they don't. Those belts don't work. They're they're just a. Anyways, so it, we just watch four women be nearly naked for five minutes until one of them sees like a note in the newspaper about how Maxwell has inherited a fortune from a dead relative in Australia. Right. So his wife, presumably they're estranged, decides to go to Meyer Schultz's house because she knows that's where Maxwell's been living. She gets there and, oh, yeah, this movie's bad and it's hard to follow sometimes. So backing up a bit, after Mrs. Buckley has noticed this dead body, Maxwell, as Meyer Schultz, realizes like, oh, I should probably not just have this out here like a throw rug. (laughs) He decides he needs to hide it. For some reason, he can't burn it. He considers burning it and says, no, I can't do it. So he hides it in the basement, black cat style. You know, tears on the wall, stuffs him behind the wall, puts the wall in. Cat gets in behind the wall. Right. Maxwell has this whole thing where he hates cats. So there is some violence towards the black cat in this story. And it's 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 worth talking about because... If you don't know it's coming, it's it's a bit of something. He's chasing this black cat all around the laboratory because the cat saw him kill uh, Meyer Schultz. And Maxwell was planning to bring Meyer Schultz back to life using the heart that Meyer Schultz made. But then the cat ate that heart out of its jar. <laughs> so Maxwell decides he's going to, like, get this cat. So he chases it around the house. And finally, and it's a black cat. He grabs it, and then we go to a close-up where this black cat is morphed into, like, a fat old tabby. And this fat old tabby, what's really happening is this tabby cat is just a one-eyed cat. And they, like, do a shot where it looks like he's gouging out its eye, but really he's just, like, popping a glass eye out of this old fat cat's face. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's supposed to represent him gouging out the eye of this black cat. It's pretty badly done. The best part about it is after the cat gets away, Maxwell, like, picks the cat eye up off the ground and eats it. Yeah, he's like, it's no different than an oyster or grape. And as he's saying that, I'm on the couch going, no, don't eat it. No, 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 no. And then he slowly brings it up to his mouth and you can just imagine my going, no. (laughs) The thing is, is when he is amontillado-ing the body of Meyer Schultz behind this wall... Uh, the cat jumps in yeah. behind the wall as well, and he doesn't notice it because Maxwell keeps slipping into these, like, hallucinatory episodes where he just laughs maniacally while stock footage from old silent movies, like, is shown. Stock footage of Satan. Representations right. of Satan. Yeah, they're from, like, um, Faust and stuff like that. 
So he's sort of slowly going mad, is the point. Fast forward back to Maxwell's wife coming to him, telling him about the inheritance. Maxwell Miles Schultz imagines, or maybe it's real, that his wife is planning to kill him to get all of the money herself. Right. Meanwhile, he also still has to get rid of Mrs. Buckley because she knows that he's murdered people and he certainly isn't doing a good job at getting her husband back. Yeah. Um, so he concocts this plan to tell his wife that, like, they'll go off and get the money, but first he needs her to kill this crazy woman that he's got in the basement. And then he tells Mrs. Buckley, like, hey, I'll help you out with getting your husband back, but first you need to kill this crazy woman I've got in the basement. Then he puts them both in the basement and closes the door, and they just start a cat fight. Yeah. And, like... Not not actual cat fighting, like, two women fighting. Although there is an actual cat fight earlier in the movie between two cats. Yeah, we see lots of cats. cat fights in this. Yeah. But these two women fighting, the main reason why this is in the movie is so that they can start tearing at each other's clothes and revealing their underwear throughout the fight. Yeah. Then the cops show up finally. Finally. Having followed the trail of clues from, hey, this guy stole a body to, let's go to his house. <laughs> um... And they show up and arrest Maxwell, pretending to be Meyer Schultz. They hear the women screaming. They go down to the basement. Uh, they hear the cat meow from behind the wall. Oh, look, there's the body of actual Meyer Schultz. Maxwell goes to jail. The end. If you've seen an Ed Wood movie or if you've seen The Room, it's that kind of filmmaking. Like, there are a ton of shots in this movie where... The background is in focus, but the actors who are talking are not. <laughs> or scenes where people are delivering dialogue, but their backs are to the camera the whole way through. Like, just a lot of incompetence, generally. A couple of times where we joked that these were just two homeless people that they brought in just to play these roles. Like, uh, the two morgue caretakers, I guess. The way that they're delivering lines and moving props around. It's like... You guys are just saying words because that someone's going to give you, like, ten bucks after. Yeah, it's like, there's sort of three levels of acting in this movie. <laughs> sure. So, if you really are, like, a major character in this movie and you have to do a lot, the, those are probably real actors, quote-unquote. They're, like, not good enough actors to get into real, quote-unquote, movies, but, like, they're probably actors. The next level down is there's probably a bunch of people in this movie who are just, like, friends and family of the people making the movie, where it's just like, come on, say this line for, you know, five minutes, whatever, and then you can go home. And then, yeah, at the bottom of the tiers, I really suspect there's a category of people appearing in this movie who are like, hey, buddy, I'll give you a beer if you come over here and read these words in front of a camera. Because, like, these guys seem like they are drunk, and that this is all just a lark to them, and that the sooner, like, it's over and they can get their beer, the better. But it's a movie made for $5,000. Yeah, so. oh yeah, for sure, but it's, it, it's definitely that kind of movie. The writing in this, man, like, it's just weird speeches, and, you know, people saying things that don't make any sense, and conversations that go on too long, and, yeah. you know... Yeah, and shots that go on too long. Mm-hmm. All the classic hallmarks of this kind of movie, I think. Yeah. And speaking of classic hallmarks, like, it it definitely still fits in the horror genre, despite this weird, like, insertion of, like, educational stuff about mental illness. Mm -hmm. Because we have the Mad Scientist, we have the Edgar Allan Poe references, mm -hmm. um, we have 
extraneous violence. Damsels in distress. Damsels, the undead. Sure. A weird guy who thinks he's an orangutan who carries off with an undead woman nude into the wilderness and is never seen again. Yeah, so it one thing that I, I wasn't sure when we were going to watch this movie was, like, I didn't understand how it could still be a horror movie. Mm. Maybe because when you were saying educational, I was thinking, like, is there a way for the magic school bus to be, like, something other than educational? <laughs> you know, like, would that fit into, like, any kind of genre outside of that. But the educational stuff here is just a smokescreen. Yeah, and, like, I I had even prepped notes to talk about, like, the illnesses that are mentioned, and, like, there's no point in doing so, because they're just put in, and there's there's no through line into mm-hmm. anything. The best you can kind of guess is, based on, like, when they happen to be inserted, that you're supposed to be... Ref- like, if it was to actually be an educational film, that you'd be trying to look for these behaviors or symptoms in Maxwell. Yeah, exactly. But that's it. I feel like Dwayne Esper got this idea from watching Hexen because of the way that, like, they mention Satan. They have the overlay of Faust, Mm -hmm. Satan stuff, but also the pairing of horror with mental illness. Okay. I don't know. That might be giving Dwayne Esper a lot of credit because I don't think... I don't know if he could have possibly seen Hexen... Since I'm pretty sure we said in the episode that Hexen was banned in the States until the 1960s. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, I had forgotten about that. Yeah, so, you know. So maybe not. But it certainly is the kind of thing where I think the formula for these movies, in a lot of ways, was about finding the educational topic that could give you the excuse for the movie you wanted to make. Mm -hmm. And I think in the case of wanting to make a horror movie... It's like, okay, we'll talk about mental illness because people in horror movies are crazy, right? Yeah. And that can be our smokescreen. You know, if you want to make the orgy movie, then you're going to talk about the dangers of adultery. And if you want to make... Or venereal disease. Yeah, yeah. And if you want to make the, like, crazy party movie, oh, don't do drugs, kids. Like, so I think that's more of what's going on here. Like, even more than a movie like Reefer Madness... The disconnect between the educational stuff here and the actuality of the movie is very wide. Definitely. I mean, if you if you haven't watched it, it really is like just picture in your mind watching, you know, something like like if you were watching Hannibal today, you know, the NBC show, and just if like every five minutes, just a dictionary definition of a mental disorder showed up on screen with some cheerful music in the background. Cheerful violins. Yeah, and then just went away. That's all it is. Yeah. Do you want to move on to ranking? Yeah, I think so. There's not really a lot to say about this movie other than this is the kind of movie you get drunk and you watch with some friends and you goof on and you riff on. Like, this is the kind of movie... Mystery Science Theater 3000. Yes, exactly. This is the type of movie you show, you know, at the midnight movies and you make fun of it and you throw stuff at the screen and it doesn't matter because it's, it's garbage and the people making it pretty much knew that. Yeah. You know, the Espers weren't trying to make good movies. They were trying to make movies that would shock people or be taboo enough that they knew they could make money off them really mm-hmm. easily with this system they had going. Yeah. They're, they're griffs as movies. <laughs> <laughs> so where were you thinking for 
maniac because it it's a hard thing to judge these movies that are this bad when you get into the movies that are so bad that your brain's only possible way to react to them is to laugh is to laugh and to be entertained by them but like ironically and for not the reasons that the filmmakers intended it becomes very hard to objectively consider them right yeah and i also think um i feel like this is a kind of movie that if someone watching it would have that phrase of it knows what it is Mm. or whatever and i hate that phrase because like that's just saying that like the people making the movie knew what they were doing and how to make a movie into what they were doing sure if that makes sense yeah and like this movie is lit- like you you said it best before we moved on to ranking like they knew that they were making a schlocky film and wanted to just push taboos and boundaries um they're not trying to make frankenstein right but on the other hand like they're not trying to make a comedy either like yeah. there's a lot of stuff that's really funny in this movie but it's all unintentional you know the 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 ironic humor appeal of this movie is not something this movie's doing on purpose. And I think in a lot of cases when you have movies that are doing that on purpose, it ends up actually ruining those movies uh, in a way, which is kind of weird. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the crux as to why it's a little hard to figure out where to rank this. My range mm-hmm. is in like the lower half of the list, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, the highest I would go is... Above or below, but probably below, The Monster Walks at okay. 45. Okay. And the lowest I would go is to put it above Wolf Blood, but below Haunted Curiosity Shop at 48. All right. Your range was almost the same as mine. Oh, cool. Um, I really... The only way I could think about this movie was thinking about sort of a what would I rather watch mm. type test, as well as, you know, I knew it was better than House of Mystery, just because even if it's a worse made movie the weirdness of it and the 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 bizarreness of it meant that like you're at least entertained and engaged when you're watching it in a way that you aren't in house of mystery because there's no original thought or creativity in house of mystery at all right yeah so thinking about it in that way my ceiling was below la llorona and above the monster mm-hmm. uh, at number 43 just because the, the monster is really bad so like if you said, like, hey, would you rather watch Maniac or The Monster? I think I'd probably just pick Maniac because it's fun. It, because it's so bad. And then, um, same thing, I sort of bottomed out at saying, below Haunted Curiosity Shop, above Wolf Blood at number 49. Um, because Wolf Blood's boring. Yeah. For like an hour. For sure. And then it only gets weird in like the last 10 minutes. Whereas this movie's weird throughout. <laughs> yeah. So I basically ended up overlapping with you just going a few spots higher than you were at the monster walks. Which one's the monster walks again? That's the uh first really terrible movie we had that had the uh chimpanzee locked in the basement. Oh. And uh the immigrants of the bad Yeah, yeah. Guys. You know what? I mixed up the monster and the monster walks. Oh. So actually my range is exactly the same as yours. Okay, uh, yeah. Yeah, I would I would say it's yeah. Same range, exact range between Night of Terror and the Monster Walks to between Haunted Curiosity Shop and Wolf Blood. Okay. Do you want to just put it above the Monster Walks then? Yeah, I think I think that's fair because ultimately this is more fun. Like, you, yeah. you, you know, put a gun to my head, I'd rather watch this than the Monster <laughs> Walks, which is just kind of a 
boring, drab kind of movie. Yeah. The reason why I my bottom was where it was at is, like, Wolf Blood is a boring movie, but, like, it has its merits. But I felt more engaged with Haunted Curiosity Shop than yeah. I did with this movie. Yeah, Haunted Curiosity Shop has the same... Haunted Curiosity Shop and Maniac are, are, are um, oddly comparable in that they both have a bit of, like, a, a WTF factor, where, like, <laughs> your brain can't quite process what it's seeing, so it's just left going, wait, what did I just see, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think ultimately, like, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's still a better movie than Monster Walks, just for its willingness to go there and do things that people hadn't done before. For the WTF factor. Yeah. So going in at number 45 is Maniac, a.k.a. Sex Maniac, from 1934, Directed by Dwayne Esper. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to other episodes, as well as an appeals box where you can submit uh, your questions, concerns, and if you think that a movie we have ranked previously deserves a better or worse spot, that's where you can send them. You can also email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or talk to us on Twitter at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday through SoundCloud and iTunes uh, and is therefore available on most podcast apps, uh, Apple Podcasts, whichever one you're looking to use just through the RSS feed. You can give us a rating or a review on iTunes, which helps other people find the show. You can comment on SoundCloud. We love to hear your feedback. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, we've got... Um, Sort of an interesting program coming up. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a special announcement, which is that on this Saturday, up on the feed, there'll be going up sort of a Scream Scene special, where we just felt it was too big to be in another movie's episode, mm -hmm. but not really big enough to be, you know, a full, maybe hour-long episode. So it's just going to be kind of a special coming out between two episodes on Saturday on the Hollywood Production Code. And specifically the production code administration run by William Hayes and Joseph Breen from 1934 to 1960-something. And just going through how the code came about, why it existed for a while without actually being enforced, why they started enforcing it, and what was actually in it. And therefore how that affected the horror genre. So that'll be going up on Saturday and then Wednesday at the regularly scheduled time, <laughs> we will be watching our first post-code Hollywood horror film, Bride of Frankenstein. Excellent. Yeah, I know this is an episode people have been looking forward to for a while. I've been looking forward to covering it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So until we see you next time, good night, creatures of the night. <laughs> Bye. Bye.